Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and the videocast where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world. But we also teach you about these incredible travel stories to inspire you to travel more, but also to travel differently. And on today's episode, we have Nancy, who is a subject matter expert in the area of family travel on bikes. Uh, she has a great website called familyonbikes.org, and she's also written several books about the subject. She did an incredible trip with her, uh, her, with her husband and kids all the way from Alaska down to Argentina uh, over three years and I think 15,000 kilometers plus uh, ending off in the southernmost point of South America, Ushuaia. And uh, currently at the time of this interview, I'm kind of doing the same route. I'm here in Bogota, Colombia, and we're going down to Argentina as well, but not on bikes, mostly on buses and uh, public transport. Uh, so on this interview today, we have the pleasure of uh, interviewing Nancy about this incredible journey, super inspiring. So Nancy, um, first of all, why didn't you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you so passionate about travel? Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, I was a, a teacher. Uh, my husband was also a teacher, so I taught for 21 years. He taught for 20. I've always wanted to travel. Uh, as soon as I got out of college, I went in the Peace Corps and spent a couple of years abroad. And then my husband and I spent 12 years, I believe, teaching in international schools in various countries. We taught in Egypt, Ethiopia, Taiwan, Malaysia. Our children were born while we were, or they're twins, they were born when we were living in Ethiopia. So the idea of traveling around the world has been with us forever. Um, but then when they were, well, in grade two, we made the decision to head out on the bikes. And so we ended up doing one year. Uh, when they were in grade three, we cycled around the U.S. and Mexico, came back to Idaho when they were in grade four, and then we ended up leaving again, and we spent their grades five, six, seven years riding from Alaska to Argentina. Awesome. And uh, you mentioned they were actually born in uh, Ethiopia and Africa. So uh, tell us about the uh, logistics of how that works. Uh, do you uh, actually get uh, uh, passports for them? Uh, are they citizens? Uh, how does that work uh, uh, in terms of their nationality? They were actually born in the U.S. We were living in Ethiopia at the time, and we toyed with the idea of, of having uh, giving birth in Ethiopia. As soon as we found out it was twins, we realized the risk factor was too great. So I did come back to the U.S. when I was six months pregnant and waited until they were born. They flew back to Ethiopia when they were six weeks old. So their passport pictures were taken 12 hours after they were born. It was wow. pretty cute. Uh, what, what would have happened if they were born in Ethiopia? Would they get full uh, rights as a citizen? In, uh, yeah, they would have still been considered natural-born citizens. Uh, they were born to two American parents, even if, I mean, it really only has to be one American parent. And you just have to register them with the local embassy. So had they been born in Ethiopia, we would have just gone down to the American embassy and filed there for their birth and they would have been natural they would have been considered natural born americans even though they were born abroad okay very interesting and uh you know I, i'm kind of curious about that because i've interviewed a few different people who've actually had anchor babies not in the u.s but in uh, like for example the kings uh, sabina and uh, chris they had an anchor baby in costa rica which gave their daughter uh, costa rican citizenship and also the potential of their parents too so it's a good kind of trick if you want to retire overseas somewhere and it depends on the country. In Ethiopia, because neither my husband nor I are Ethiopian, it was not an option for us. Our boys never could have gotten Ethiopian citizenship. So it depends on the country. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely an interesting topic uh, to consider. Uh, so I'm interested, obviously, in this entire bike journey you did. Uh, you did a trial, um, uh, U.S. and Mexico, and then you decided to go full out and do a three-year trip uh, through the Americas, North America, Central America, South America. Uh, so tell us about that journey itself in terms of the planning and the logistics. Uh, what did it take in terms of the mindset, the emotions, and obviously more the practical necessities of doing this trip? I think the thing that surprised me most was that the planning, really there was very little planning for the bike trip itself. Uh, most of the planning was just the logistics in terms of putting our lives on hold. How do you, when you have a house and you have all of that stuff, how do you pack up all of that and I mean sure there's packing up in boxes your physical stuff but then there's all the other stuff how do you how do you put all that on hold how do you take it so that you can access your banking information from around the world um, what do you do with the house while you're gone for three years one of the things that surprised me was junk mail I got all kinds of junk mail at the house and I we had decided we were going to rent out the house and I didn't want all this junk mail arriving for our tenants. I can't even tell you how many hours I spent trying to stop the flow of junk mail coming to the house. We had, my parents had owned the house for 35 years before we took it over. And so we had 30 years worth of mailing lists and all this stuff. We had so much junk mail and those were the things that ended up being the hardest. So that's pretty amazing that it was more about the, the other things rather than the trip itself. So in terms of the trip, you started in Alaska and you went to Argentina, which is uh, quite a distance, even if you took right. a, a bus or a car. Uh, so the fact that you did a bike is almost unfathomable uh, for me. Anyway. It really is, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm sure every time you look at a map, you're kind of blown away that you actually rode a bike across this entire territory. Amazing. You got it. You got it. It really is. I mean, when you look at it in its entirety, it's huge, it's vast, it's enormous, and it's too much for the human brain to really comprehend. <laughs> so what we did was we didn't look at it in its entirety. We knew that we had that end goal. We knew that this is where we were headed. But we didn't really even think about that. Like it really wasn't even at the forefront of our minds. What we were doing on a day-to-day -day basis was getting to the next town. So we started out in Prudhoe Bay and it was 500 miles down to Fairbanks. So I planned for that 500 miles. I had enough, you know, I made sure I had enough food. I made sure I knew how to get water. I, I made sure that we had adequate clothing, that we had everything we would need for that 500 miles. And I focused only on that 500 miles. Then when we got to Fairbanks, then I would say, okay, now I'll look at a map and I'll figure out the next town. What we found was that we could, in general, we could work with about a 300-mile stretch. 300 miles was very comfortable, very easy. It was a very manageable chunk for us. I knew how much food we would need. I knew I could look up and figure out exactly where we were going to be able to find food, um, you know, Toward the end, of course, I knew I could plan that out very well. I knew how to read a map well enough to figure out where the rivers might be. 
I knew what kinds of questions to ask to find out where we would find potable water. Um, so toward the end, I was able to really zero in and I knew, okay, this next stretch is going to be five days. I need this much food. We're going to have two water stops in there. So we need this much water with us. Uh, but yeah, I definitely, I dealt with manageable chunks only. I did not look at the journey in its entirety at all. It's a good way of looking at it. This is age-old axiom, uh, or maxim, I think that's what it's called. Uh, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? So exactly. how do you travel across the Americas? One town at a time. Right, right, exactly. One segment at a time. And when you finish that segment, and I do remember there was a moment when we were in, in Panama, and I remember coming down the steps from the hotel, and on the landing, there was a map of the Americas. I, I was just stopped in my tracks. I, I looked at that map, and that was the first time I had seen a map of the entire Americas since we had left Alaska. And I just remember standing there staring at that map, and I thought, holy crap, we've come a long ways, you know, like, I mean, I'm looking at that map going, holy smokes, we came all the way from Alaska down to here. This is an enormous distance. And, and it didn't seem like an enormous distance to us because we had just been taking it one segment at a time. And each segment in and of itself wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, but then when you strung a whole bunch of those segments together, boy, it was sure significant. Yeah, definitely. So uh, tell us about the journey. So you did Alaska, then you did Canada, and then you did the West Coast of the U.S. And then uh, walk us through um, the different uh, countries you went through in, in terms of Central America and South America. What was your route? We actually did not do the West Coast of America. We came down through Canada, uh, went over through Jasper and Banff. We dropped down into the U.S. in Montana, um, went down through Montana, Wyoming, uh, Utah. So we came right on the western edge of the Rockies. Once okay. we hit the Mexican border, we followed the Mexican border almost to the very, very, very tip of Mexico. So then we went down the eastern coast of Mexico over to the Yucatan, Belize, a little bit into Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, all the way down. We did the western coast of Costa Rica. And then, uh, yeah, and then on onwards, what were the countries after that? Then, of course, Panama. We took a sailboat from Panama down to Cartagena, Colombia. From Colombia, we went over into Ecuador, then Peru. Um, we did the coast of Peru. Then we climbed up in southern Peru. We climbed up into the Andes, and we went through Bolivia, dropped down into Mexico by Salta, um, then made our way over to Mendoza and, and on down. So, uh, any uh, just out of curiosity, how come you didn't do the west coast of the U.S.? What made you uh, choose the other route, the other states? We had done the west coast of the U.S. on that previous trip, and it was wonderful. But when we talked with the kids and said, okay, we're going to be doing this trip, um, what do you want to do? And the two things that Daryl wanted to do, he wanted to see Mount Rushmore, and he wanted to see Yellowstone. Well, of course... They're kind of directly across from each other. There's Mount Rushmore and there's Yellowstone. So we said, well, we can do either one. Okay, we can come down through South Dakota to see Mount Rushmore or through Montana, Wyoming to see Yellowstone. And we opted to do Yellowstone. So it was just that. It was he wanted, he wanted to see Yellowstone and we said, okay, we can make that happen. 
Sounds good. Uh, you know, I'm glad you got the input of the kids in, in, in the trip as well. So uh, was it pretty much 100% bicycle with the exception of Something when I was trying to do this camera thing, and I don't know what. I have F eleven. Was it F eleven is full uh, screen? Okay. I just remember there was a button for it, and I was trying to remember what it was. Okay, good. I had no idea. F eleven. Yeah, I never use it. Oh, looks like it's back up.
Hello? There, I just heard you. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure what happened there. I think the Wi-Fi cut off. Or uh, <laughs> I'm here in Bogota, Colombia. I think the internet is not that good. But uh, what I was asking you, Nancy, is um, did you do the whole trip uh, pretty much 100% by bicycle with the exception of the sailboat? Or did you do some buses, um, uh, you know, throwing your bi bikes in the back of a pickup? Or was it 100% bike power or feet power, pedal power? It was 100% pedal power. Um, our boys decided, as we were planning the trip, they decided that they wanted to break the world record as the youngest people to cycle the length of the Americas. But in order for them to get that record, it meant that it need, we needed to do the entire journey uh, by bike. And so that did drive decisions. There was one section up in Canada where, there were do, where they were doing road construction and they wouldn't allow us to go through on the bikes. It was about a three mile section. So we did have to load the bikes on a pilot car and they took us through. Uh, that was okay because we simply were not allowed on the road. But other than that, um, we had to choose our route to avoid any kind of like ferries. We, we, like, for example, we couldn't go down Baja and then take a ferry over to mainland Mexico because that would have been the ferry. So we did make route decisions based on where we could ride our bikes versus using other forms of transportation. So did you end up actually hitting that record, the Guinness Book of World Records for the youngest people to ever bike down the Americas? It's kind of an odd story. When we were battling winds on the Peruvian coast, um, what was her name? Jessica Sutherland or something like that was out trying to be the youngest person to sail around the world. And a big storm came up, her mast broke, she was stranded in the middle of the ocean and had to be rescued. Um, after that, Guinness World Records made the decision that they were no longer going to recognize the youngest category. Um, so we were in Peru when that happened. So. We finished the journey and Guinness kind of just said, we commend you for having done this, but we are no longer doing youngest to do anything. Um, so we don't have official, we have an official letter from Guinness World Records explaining this. Uh, nobody is questioning that our boys are the youngest to have done it. Uh, they don't have the Guinness World Record, but other organizations that keep track of world records have recognized the boys as the youngest. Well, congratulations on those. Uh, what are the, some of the other organizations? Because uh, I think everyone knows the Guinness, but tell us about some of the other ones that uh, recognize these you know, records. I, I don't even remember the names of them. Um, this is, it was six years ago that we were working on this, and I can't tell you off the top of my head what the names of them are. One of my goals, uh, I'll share this as well, uh, I've shared it a little bit publicly, but not fully, but uh, one of my goals is to be the first family to visit every country in the world. Uh, we're currently at 68, and uh, we're going, uh, you know, throughout all of South America, we want to do Africa next, and I would love my kids to be the youngest kids, or, or the only minors in history to ever go to every single country. So far, I think um, uh, youngest is, is like in the 20s. So I'm not sure if, if uh, you got me kind of thinking whether they'll even be recognized, which is sad because they could actually be the, the first minors to hit every country in the world, right? Yeah, and you know, I mean, and I guess it's, does it really matter if Guinness recognizes it or not? 
like my boys, they know what they've done and nobody can ever take that from them. And it was an amazing accomplishment. And whether some organization happens to send them a certificate or not doesn't diminish what they've done. Yes, yes. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, so, Nancy, tell us also about some of the struggles. I mean, uh, I'm sure there were a lot of struggles and challenges with, um, uh, you know, mentally, emotionally, relationally between your wife, uh, between your husband, I mean, and your kids. So tell us about some of the struggles emotionally, relationally, mentally, and, of course, practically. Well, I think, like, just looking at logistics, you know, we had all the extremes so we had like central america the extreme heat um dealing with the dehydration and how we 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 got good at recognizing the signs of dehydration so that we could take care of it early and we changed our life we actually we would get up at 3 30 in the morning so that we could be on the road at the first sign of light in order to take advantage of the relative cool in the morning you know we'd be off the road by 10 o'clock in the morning so that there were logistical challenges involved with that and then conversely when we were up in the high andes and it was blazing cold we were up there in the coldest winter on record um and so then of course we couldn't even get out of our sleeping bags until 10 in the morning because it was just so cold so we only had a few hours in the middle of the day that we could ride so we would just ride hard for those few hours um, try to take advantage of that time. We need to be off the road. We figured realistically we need to be off the road by like four in order to get set up before the extreme cold set in again. So there are definitely logistical issues involved with that, you know, and then there's the, the distances. So there's long distances where you have to figure out how much food do you need and how much water. Again, all of that is stuff that you learn as you go, you figure things out. Um, and I suppose for somebody that's new to this whole thing, for them to jump on a bike and show up in Honduras, uh, dealing with the heat would probably be really hard. But if you've been on the bikes for a while, those, those kinds of logistics are really not that big of a deal. Uh, mentally, that's the harder part. Um, that's where sometimes you really had to, you know, dig deep. Uh, there were times when it was, you start questioning, is this really worth it? Um, I went through, uh, I, uh, there were really only about three periods where I was really, we were in Costa Rica and it was really hot and it was humid and it was miserable and the roads were terrible and the drivers were awful. And I started kind of questioning, is this worth it? Um, and I never really answered the question. I just kind of, in my head, is this worth it? Uh, and, but I just kept pedaling and I never really went any further with it. Then when we got down into Northern Peru, we had gone through this desert section that was just really tough. And there was just, it was just a hard, hard time for us. And I kind of hit bottom and I was spiraling down and this is awful and it's terrible and it's horrible and Peru sucks and the Peruvian people suck and blah, 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 blah. You know, it was just, everything was horrible. And little Daryl, he was 12 at the time, and he turned to me and he said, Mom, you're not going to change anything by complaining. All you can do is keep going and things will get better. 
And I remember just kind of being caught off guard by this wisdom that this 12-year-old kid had. Um, complaining wasn't going to change anything. And so I made a decision that I was going to get to Lima, 500 miles away. And I said, you know, if I'm still this miserable when I get to Lima, I'll make a decision. And I didn't know what that decision was going to be. I still have no clue what that decision was going to be. But I said, I'm going to go to Lima and then I'll make a decision. And of course, by the time I got to Lima, everything was fine and no problem. But then the, the hardest time for me, and I think this was probably for me the hardest moment on the entire journey. We were down in Argentina and it was just, I was exhausted. Um, you've heard the term bone tired. And I don't think I really understood what bone tired meant until that day. Um, it had been a hard stretch, but winds had been horrible, distances were long, the bugs were terrible, food was hard to come by, the hills where we were paralleling the Andes, so we would climb up 3,000 uh, 3, vertical feet, plunge back down, cross the river, right back up another three or 4,000 feet. It was just, it was exhausting. Um, and then on top of that, my bike was, I was popping spokes, um, and I my spare spoke supply was dwindling, and I didn't know if my bike was going to make it. There was just all of this stuff going on. And I remember we pulled into this little town called Zapala, tiny little town. And I was, I was at my breaking point. And I will cry telling this story because it was so hard for me. It was, it was that moment when I was really broken. Uh, we pulled into this town, and my husband somehow knew, and I don't know how he knew that I was at that point, but he knew that I was, and he knew that another night in the tents would have, another night in the tents would have been it. That would have just been, I would have been done. And so we went to a hotel, and I remember just standing there standing in the shower as the water was coursing over my body and I was so tired and I I was done I was just so done I was so tired of pushing my bike up these huge climbs on these horrible dirt roads I was tired of setting up the tent in the evening and packing it up in the morning and I was tired of foraging for food for my family and I was tired of dealing with the bugs and I I was tired of it all I was so tired of it and yet as I stood there in that shower and I was broken I was more broken than I had ever been in my entire life and I remember standing there in that shower as water coursed over my body and I thought but I'm not going to give up yet we still had 2100 miles and by anybody's reckoning, 2,100 miles on a bicycle is a long ways. Uh, but when you compare it to 17,000, uh, 2,100 is not that far. And I remember standing there in that shower and thinking, I am going to make it to Ushuaia. Even as tired and as broken as I was, I was not willing to give up on the dream. And I knew, I knew at that moment 
that I would hate, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating at all, I would hate every single pedal stroke between Zapala and Ushuaia, but by golly, I was going to do it. Um, and of course, as I went on, things turned around and the end of our journey was great and all of that. But in that moment, in that moment when I was there in that shower, I, there was nothing except this deep down determination that I was going to complete this journey, that I was going to reach this goal. I had been working on this goal for four years and there was no way at that point that I was going to turn my back on that goal. And I think that's really important because the reality is that with any big goal that we have, we're going to go through those moments. We're going to go through those times when this is hard, this is damn hard. And at that point, the only thing that will keep you going is if you have an intense internal desire to make this happen. Wow, I'm a little bit speechless. Uh, very beautiful, uh, you know, what you shared. And uh, thank you. Thank you for being so open and transparent <laughs> and vulnerable on the podcast i know i thank you and i can see it's so real for you uh even at this moment six years later at that moment in the shower i can almost like uh, uh feel your pain actually and i think we've all been there to some degree uh, as, uh, as it might be in our bedroom where we feel so depressed and feel right. like giving up it might be in our marriages when we're fighting so much we feel like we're going to get divorced it might feel we lost a job yeah. or you know, like I think we've all been at the point of giving up, and a lot of us do give up. But uh, I, I'm so glad, uh, and I'm sure you are too, that you did not give up at that single moment. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I know now that, and and I knew at the moment. I mean, and I think that's the important thing. I knew even then that if I gave up, I would regret it. And I wanted nothing more than to give up. Trust me. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was to get back on that bike and continue pedaling. But I knew that the regret that would come with that was worse than getting back on that bike. So you completed the journey. Uh, you know, I would love to hear from your kids perspective because you just shared something really raw. Uh, tell us about uh, the feelings. Uh, similar to what you just shared, that went through your mind and the heart of your husband and especially your kids, your twin boys. As far as... Well, I mean, know, the emotions. I, I mean, uh, tell us about the emotions they yeah. felt in terms of giving up, in terms of making it. I'd love to hear about their emotions. You know, I, I think the what, what, what they have told me is they never questioned it. Uh, once they had made the decision that they were going to do this, they had made the decision, that's it. Um, and they never doubted it and they never questioned it and they never doubted that they could do it. And I, I believe them. I believe them that they, that they trusted the whole time. They believed that they could do it. So uh, mission accomplished and you're back in the US now. Tell us about right. uh, what, what happened <laughs> once. Uh, uh, actually, maybe share about the Ushuaia moment. I think that's a good moment to share. And then we'll talk about how, how it is now that you're back in the US. But um, you know, uh, when you rode your bike to that sign, there's a world famous sign that I think a lot of us know about. It's uh, the end of, the, end of South America, something, you know, something like that. So tell us about yeah. that moment when you saw the sign and how did that feel? That was incredible, um, absolutely incredible. So there was a, a 
couple that lived in Ushuaia that had heard about us through the media and they wrote and invited us to stay with them. So we're like, oh, that's great, thank you. And uh, what we didn't expect was that they would come out and meet us on the road. So we were probably, so we woke up that morning, we were, uh, we had camped in a forest just probably about 40 miles from Ushuaia, something like that. Uh, got up that morning and it was raining and I was just like, no, I am not going to do the final day of this trip in the rain. No way. Like, no, uh, 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 but you know, what choice do you have? Right? So we get up and packed and fortunately, uh, by the time we hit the road, the rain had stopped and it was one of those glorious days and it was way down South and it was fall. So it was crisp. Um, wasn't cold, but it was just, you know, day. And we were riding and we had one final pass to go up. So we're climbing up this pass. We get up to the top of the pass and we're overlooking this beautiful lake. And it's just this gorgeous, gorgeous scene. And this couple shows up uh, that we're staying with. So that was really cool. So here they are. So they had the car and then they were also cyclists. And so they then escorted us where they would take turns riding. One of them would ride with us for a little while and then they would swap and the other one would ride and then, you know, drive. But anyway, so we had them with us as we went in and it was just so beautiful. As you start getting down, way down there, you know, in the last 50 miles or so, actually the last 20 miles are just, spectacular it's just it's oh i mean the the scenery is just so amazing so we're riding along and it was just this this visual visual overload it was so beautiful and then there's the emotions on top of it and then we finally we, we come in and about five miles or so before the port there's this big arch thing going over the road and it said you know welcome to ushuaia and I remember riding past there, and I'm screaming, like, Woo, Ushuaia, Ushuaia. Um, But we, we were just like, we've got to get to that sign. As you mentioned, this end of the world sign, it was for four years. That's been on my mind. That's been my goal, is to get to this sign, this end of the world. And so this couple was with us. They just parked their car, and then both of them are on their bikes. And... Uh, we're riding through town and they were guiding us. And it was, I, my mind was, I don't even know. My mind was just everywhere. It was filled with so many thoughts. And, and I remember I was just so distracted with everything. And then I would bring myself back and say, focus, Nancy, focus. You know, you can't get in an accident. You're this close. You can't get in an accident now. And I'm just like, focus on your bike. And, you know, and, and it was just the most bizarre, surreal experience to actually be there. So we, we pull up and these and this couple stops. And so we stop and I have no idea why they they've stopped. They pointed. And they uh, we looked over off to the sign and there's the big sign. There it is. Daryl jumped off the back of the tandem and went running over to the sign. Uh, the rest of us take our bikes, we go over to the sign, and um, and, and we were just, it was just, it was incredible. It was the most amazing feeling to actually be there after four years.
installing stuff on my computer now. Oh, it's exciting. Wow. I've Overwatch installing, I have Ultimate Dark Souls, I have Skyrim, I also have Fallout, and it's going to be nice. So apparently, Donald Trump Jr. got an email from this Russian diplomat saying that he had your phone Hillary Clinton and that he wanted to get the bad that he wanted. So you would think that if he got an email from a Russian to elect your dad, he was a loyal American, contact the FBI. I'm just saying. So this guy gets this email from Russia saying, hey, we don't like Hillary Clinton, we want to elect your dad, we have dirt on Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump Jr. doesn't tell his dad. What are the chances that he wouldn't tell his dad? <laughs> I'm just like, this is just crazy crap. You there?
Hey, Nancy, can you hear me? I can hear you. I actually booted my computer back up. It was something was wrong with it. Uh, it froze up. I think oh. it's something to do with the internet here. It very well could be. I remember we had trouble with internet down there. Yeah. Yeah. Just stand by one second. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm just going to continue from where I got cut off. So I believe I was asking you about your epic moment when you hit the sign. So walk us through the last part of hitting the sign. Yeah. So we're with this other couple, um, and they pull up. We're in the middle of town, and they. Well, we weren't, I don't know, we were somewhere, and all of a sudden they stop. And so we pull up behind them, and we have no idea what's going on. And they just kind of quietly pointed. So we look where they're pointing, and sure enough, there's the sign, like right there on the other side of the street. And so uh, Daryl immediately jumped off the tandem, because he was on a tandem bike with his father. He immediately jumped off the tandem and went running over to the sign. Uh, the other three of us go over there with our bikes. We parked our bikes, and just uh it was it was just lots of screaming and shouting and hugging and jumping and cheering and clapping and uh it was a pretty amazing moment yeah you know uh it, it is powerful when you achieve a dream uh, no matter how small or big or incredible or uh unfathomable it it is and it was so good on you congratulations thanks yeah it was just an amazing moment and took us, you know, it was four years. It was a year of planning and then three years of biking to get there. And it was, it was phenomenal. We, uh, there are no words. There simply are no words. Yes. Uh, there's a saying, and uh, I love sayings and maxims and quotes and all that. There's a saying, travel leaves you speechless. And then it, it turns you into a storyteller. Right. Exactly. Mm exactly it does you know those moments that just leave you speechless you there are no words and then you try to put it in words and you do the best you can but words aren't words aren't adequate but words are all we have <laughs> and you actually put a lot of That's words, it. you put a lot of words into books um and also obviously you're a great uh, orator i mean i've seen your ted talk and even on this uh interview you actually are really able to uh, put your reader, your viewer, your listener into that moment. And that's an amazing storytelling ability. I just wanted to uh, acknowledge that. Uh, uh, you've written five books. Um, tell us about the uh, journey back home. I mean, uh, I guess you flew back to the US and then uh, you started writing books. And tell, tell us about that journey uh, post Ushuaia. Right, so um, I, I do, I have five books out. Three of them are travelogues. Um, there's one about Alaska and Argentina, obviously. That's called Changing Gears. Um, and all of these are available on Amazon. So there's Changing Gears, which is the Alaska and Argentina. One called 20 Miles Per Cookie. That first in Mexico with our children when our children were in third grade. Then I have another one called What Were We Thinking? And that one was about that bike trip back in 1990-91 when, uh, when just John and I cycled through Pakistan, India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. So those are three travelogues. And then I also have a book about bike touring with children with just some tips and advice and suggestions on how to get started bike touring with children called Road Schooling, The Definitive Guide to, educate, to tr Education Through Travel. And that one is 
using my educational background to try to help parents feel more confident in using their travels as the basis for their children's education. So tell us more because- And all of those are available on Amazon. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I will have links to those ones. Uh, tell us more about the educational aspect because uh, as parents, I mean, I have three young kids. I got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, a one-year-old. Education is a number one priority besides obviously health and safety. So uh, when you're on the road, tell us about how you're able to educate them. Uh, was it homeschooling, world schooling, unschooling, or all of the above? Kind of all of the above. Um, we, I think the, the main thing that my teaching background gave me was a confidence that the schools don't have all the answers. Um, the schools ha have done a great job with a curriculum, coming up with a curriculum that kind of, in general, prepares kids for what they need to know. It's There's nothing wrong with it. But there's nothing magical about it either. So it, ultimately, it doesn't matter if the kids learn the phases of the moon or the parts of a flower or if they learn about the Incan culture and the Mayan culture and they learn about the evolution of species out in the Galapagos Islands. I, you know, all of, it doesn't, the content itself doesn't matter because the reality is that they, that kids are going to learn everything there is to learn. It's just not gonna happen. They pick and choose some things and schools have picked and choose certain topics and there's nothing wrong with those topics. But my feeling is a canal. Uh oh, are you there? Yes, I am. Keep going. Okay. Uh, if I'm at the Panama Canal, it doesn't make any sense to, you know, open a book and it says, "Okay, today we're on page 63, and we're supposed to be learning about the American Civil War." So let's study the American Civil War. And I'm like, "Wait a minute! No, you're at the Panama Canal. Go learn about the Panama Canal. Learn about the history of the canal, the construction of the canal. Learn about the economic aspect and how cutting that week off the journey affected the the world economy." Learn about the ecological aspects of connecting the two oceans. Learn about the physics involved with lowering and raising those ships. Focus on the Panama Canal and you can learn a whole lot of things with the Panama Canal as the central theme. And that's, that's kind of what our experience was. It's kind of what we did as we were traveling. Our whole basis was, where are we? right now and how can we use where we are right now to learn when we were up in the uh, arctic tundra way up north they had all of these arctic grasses that were it was a very interesting type of grass that was very hardy and it could handle the extreme climate up there then the interesting thing was when we got down to bolivia and we were up in the high altiplano we started seeing those same grasses again. So then we talk about that and say, okay, why are we seeing this now in the high altiplano in Bolivia? The same thing that we saw in the far north of Alaska, up in the tundra. We're looking at reasons why those same things should be there. And so again, using your surroundings 
for as the basis for the education. So the most obvious question is what's next? I mean, you've covered the entire Americas, you know, all the way from Alaska to Argentina. Is the next thing Africa? Is the next thing uh, Asia? Is the next thing Australia? Tell us what's next. Uh, what do you want to do to maybe surpass this already incredible and fathomable feat you've done already? You know, that was the that was the major question we got after we finished is okay, now what? And there's definitely this expectation that the that the next will be bigger and better. You know, it's it's that's an American thing, you know, we are, bigger is better and you've already done this and now you need to do even bigger and you need to, you know, so okay, so you just did three years and seventeen thousand miles. So now what are you gonna do? You're gonna do five years and twenty-five thousand miles, you're gonna ride around the world, you're gonna, you know, what do you what's next? How 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 do you how do you chop this? Kind of conclusion that maybe I don't need to top this. Maybe it's okay to say, I did it and it was wonderful and it was great and I loved it and I'm so glad that I did it. But I learned what I was going to learn or I learned what I needed to learn from this travel, from the biking. Uh, it challenged me and I learned a lot, but I've learned what I needed to learn from that. And now uh, it's time to make a transition into something else. And and that was kind of where we were at. So we came back to Boise. Our boys were 13 at the time. And um, and I realized over years that while our travels were great, uh, there were definitely some things that we just simply couldn't do when we were traveling. Now, there were a lot of things we could. We could go snorkeling with sea lions and we could climb on Incan ruins and we could, you know, there was a lot of wonderful things that we could do but there were things that we couldn't. And so there was definitely a price that we had paid. Um, you know, my boys were not able to be in Boy Scouts and go out on campouts with other kids. They weren't able to be part of a robotics team, they, soccer team, swim team, all of those things that are good things. Uh, and we had given those things up. And, and that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. Every time we make a decision to do something, we make a parallel decision not to do other things. So our time on the road was fabulous, but we got to a point where all of our needs could be better met at this point by not being on the road anymore. My boys were very definitely math and science geeks, and that is a niche that's just very difficult to meet on the road. You know, when we're traveling, it's very hard to, how do you how do you build a robot when you're traveling on a bicycle you know it 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 just doesn't happen it can't happen and it can happen when we're stationary so we've been here for six years our boys were really involved with robotics uh they built amazing robots they were competing um at the top of the world level i mean their team was one of the top 25 teams in the world out of four thousand. so you know, they were really competing at a very high level of robotics, which was fascinating and exciting and wonderful. Um, and now they've, they've just completed their first year in college. Um, Davey is studying electrical engineering and Daryl is looking at software engineering and computer science. Um, who knows where they're gonna go? And I made a decision 
that I didn't want to go back to teaching. And now I'm working on, I'm, a, I'm an artist and a metalsmith. I make jewelry and I sell my jewelry and I'm having a blast doing that. Um, being challenged I'm, and, 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 it, and it's wonderful. Um, John is basically retired. He's kind of our stay-at-home dad, does all these projects around the house that need to be done. And it's fabulous and it's wonderful. And I don't feel the need to better. Our journey was fabulous. Our journey was great. Um, and that's okay. It is okay. And who knows, maybe it'll be your kids, the next generation, who are actually going to surpass it. And who knows? I mean, leave it up to them. Uh, they've obviously been impacted at a very deep, deep, deep internal level. So let's see what the future holds. Exactly. Uh, I can go to my friend's house pretty soon. So I might just leave. Can I take the van or the and uh, you know, as parents, one of the things we wonder is, uh, what is the impact we're making on our kids? I mean, uh, Nancy obviously has a great impact in terms of giving her kids a sense of adventure and passion and purpose and following your dreams. And I think that's what we need to do as parents, follow our dreams. So uh, good on you for following yours and good on us for following our dreams and good on all the other guests we interview for following their dreams because that's what's going to inspire the next generation. Yeah, and, and of course, the, the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, we don't know. We will never know the full impact of our, our travels on our kids. The reality is that there is no control group. There is no Davy and Daryl who didn't do this journey and Davy and Daryl who did, and we can compare. And we never will have that. And so all we can do is hope that the experience was a good one but that's world are making decisions and hoping that they are making the best decisions proof will be in the pudding if we made not well, you know, uh, just uh, in the interview yourself, I had a little chance to observe your son, and uh, obviously he helped you with this interview as well. So uh, he's definitely an amazing kid, and I'm sure both of your boys are amazing young adults. And part of the reason for that is the quality time you spend in those formative years, those three years were life building and uh, emotion building and uh, spirit building. So I think that was so pivotal in their identity formation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely it's a part of who they are. And they are who they are be in large part because of all of the experiences they've had. And uh, as parents, we all do the best we can and we make the best decisions we know how to make. And then it's up to the kids to do what they're going to do with that. So, Nancy, thanks again for all of your uh, stories. I love the storytelling aspect of this interview. Uh, thanks for the inspiration. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of the listeners and viewers uh, will want to contact you, maybe ask for some advice if they're going to Americas or, if, Ian, if they're doing a bike uh, trip of some sort. And also, they might want to purchase your books. So uh, what are the different uh, websites and avenues and uh, media, social media channels by which people can contact you, Nancy? Right. Our website is familyonbikes.org, and all of the information is there. I do have a Facebook page that's on, um, but it, it is there. Again, it's Family on Bikes. Uh, my books are all available on Amazon. You can search for my name, Nancy Sathry Vogel. Uh, they are also linked to on our website. So, again, everything is there at, at familyonbikes.org. 
Awesome. So uh, make sure you check out uh, Nancy's website, um, familyonbikes.org. Uh, uh, as we discovered in this interview, she's definitely a subject matter expert, not because of the head knowledge, but because of practical in, in the trenches bike experience. So thanks for your time today, Nancy, and I uh, wish you the best over there in Boise, Idaho, on your next travels and beyond. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this episode of Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast where we inspire you to travel through stories such as this. I really appreciate everyone who listened and stuck with us. Apologies for the little bit of the technical hiccups, uh, but uh, we'll see you in the next episode or we'll uh, uh, hear you in the next episode. And leave us a rating and review on iTunes, on YouTube, and, uh, you know, like, comment, share the video and the audio version of the interview. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you in the next episode. Happy travels.